This is episode 9 with Jeff Lehman. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface podcast. Jeff Lehman is a savvy investor, an award-winning author, and a Hall of Fame member of the UCF College of Business. When he's not sailing, Jeff is mentoring and coaching college students in national and international sales competitions. Jeff and I met in my early 20s at a writing software testing event. After I introduced myself, he gifted me a copy of his book, First Job, First Paycheck, which set the path for my personal finances from that day on. I invited Jeff to learn more about him and share his approach to money management. In this episode, we also discuss best practices for first-time home buyers, how to prioritize saving goals, and using robo-advisors for investing. Enjoy. Jeff, thank you so much for doing this with me. It's a my, pleasure to have you here. My pleasure. Um, one thing I wanted to... It's been a while since last time I saw you. I think uh, we were in, in your boat. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Me and my wife, we had a great time. And she wasn't your wife yet. She was. I don't, oh my God. I sh- don't, don't ask me that because you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think. I don't think. You might have just thought she was your you wife. You know, I, have, I need to work on my memory. So I, let's just say she was very significant in my life. Very. And I know for sure she wasn't pregnant back then. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now we have a four-month-year-old as of today. Right. And... Did. And it's been crazy since then. And one one of the reasons I wanted to invite you is we met uh, probably like over three, four years ago. Uh, it was at an event at Relaborate. Right, right. You were uh, an advisor for them? Yes. Andy asked me in to get my opinion on the business model. Yeah. And I think uh, you were coming to the testing, user testing meetups. I think they have wine for people to test the, the writing software. Yes. And... Is there is then when I met you and I noticed that you had a book like like a stack of jello books and I then I asked you you know what what's what was that about and you told me it was your book well you're very curious that's that's yeah. the news and you gave me a free copy I thought that was pretty cool it was my first uh free copy from a book author I ever gotten in my life <laughs> so I felt very special and I was like you know this is pretty cool I'm going to I'm going to I'm definitely going to read it it's my first special gift from an author <laughs> so since since i read your book the first job first paycheck that literally helped me a lot because i like you said i just followed the the, the best practices right i mm-hmm. did get the emergency fund set up uh investing took me a little bit because okay. i you know i wasn't comfortable with the idea but we'll talk more about that because i i think uh there's still, there's still a couple of topics that require further exploration. And, sure. and I wanted to dig down on you uh, today um, and also to help other people uh, make sure they're securing their finances or doing the best thing they can. The sooner the better. So uh, what one of the things I wanted to learn about you, which I've never asked you, is uh, to go deep into learning more about Jeff, is mm-hmm. what was your childhood like? So, you know, I had a really traditional childhood, you know, mom and dad, and I have, I'm the oldest of uh, two kids. My brother's three years younger. We just had a really, you know, traditional upbringing. The elementary school we went to was 
couple of blocks away, so we'd walk or ride our bikes to school. Uh, we had a grew up in South Florida, and in a nice town called Coral Gables. And mom sort of mom and dad set out kind of a a geographical area, like a one square mile thing that we could just be free to roam in as long as we were home by dinner. So we'd go out and do our bike rides, play with our friends, play football in the front yard, those kind of things. And that's how life went. Uh, and it had its, you know, the typical things that you would get as a kid, but it also had sort of the, well, I guess maybe these are typical too, things like, you know, there was a neighborhood bully who came and picked on kids. So I got a dose of that when I was growing up and realized, that boy, I don't ever want to be in that position, you know, uh, being bullied by somebody. So I'm, I'm an ardent supporter of non-bullying these days. Uh, it just doesn't feel good when it happens to you. So, but, uh, just other little things, you know, you're, as you're a kid, you're kind of wandering around the neighborhood. One day I stumbled into a TV commercial being filmed for good humor ice cream. And so my right hand is in a good humor ice cream commercial when I was in sixth grade. So just things like that growing up in the neighborhood. It was just very simple. A lot of really nice people. Um, life was, you know, pretty good. It seemed like very normal to me. What, what would you say you wanted to be when you were a kid? I had a couple things I wanted to be. I would say when I was probably in sixth or seventh grade, I wanted to be an account executive on the Volkswagen account for Doyle, Dane, and Bernbach. I had a very specific goal in mind that is crazy it is how did you come up with that <laughs> Never well, heard any well for a kid <laughs> well i like i liked volkswagens because my sixth grade teacher had a volkswagen beetle and i just thought they were cool cars mm -hmm. and over the course of you know junior high school and high school when i went to high school there was a volkswagen dealer right near our how our school so i'd walk over there after school and look at cars because i thought that was kind of cool so nice, that was one of the things that you know kind of popped up on my radar i thought that would be very cool to be an advertising guy Wow. And then who who you say influenced you most growing up? Boy, you know, there's a lot of people I think that, you know, it was my close group of friends. Uh, you know, they say you're the average of your five closest friends. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I always managed to have like really interesting people around me. Um, obviously my family, my brother is a big influence. Uh, he's my younger brother, but I look up to him. He's a great guy. And, uh, and my mom and dad. You know, just mm -hmm. very solid people. And those, I mean, it was just, there was no like big star that I always looked up to. It was uh, just the people around me that I got a really good feeling out of the way they approached life. And I thought, well, I'll try some of those things that they do and see how those work for me. Was there, so there's never anybody outside of the family that uh, caught your attention growing up at all? Well, so we had one family friend who um, had a... Uh, late 60s silver Porsche 911. Right. And he fascinated me because I'd never seen a car like that before. And I just always thought that he was the coolest guy in town. I think he was a pilot, if I remember. And uh, just a really interesting guy. And he'd always blaze up in this car. And I just thought, wow, that's really interesting. I've never seen a car like that before. So, I mean, I don't know if I looked up to him. I kind of looked up to his car. <laughs> But mm -hmm. not him. Just, he was a nice guy, and I've kept in touch with him over the years. So, Can you tell me more about your journey, as far as college goes, on figuring out what you wanted to do? Okay, so I started off with this interest in advertising. And then in high school, the interest became architecture. I guess I never got past A in the alphabet uh -huh. on careers. And uh, I had a couple of really great teachers 
who taught drafting and architecture, and it just became very interesting to me. It was a, uh, a way to learn how to communicate uh, differently than the spoken word. You, know, you had to graphically communicate mm-hmm. what you we were trying to do. And uh, that became the path that I started on for a while and uh, started uh, my first year in college was in architecture. And then I realized quickly that um, architects are one step above starving artists in the pay grade and that I would rather be the guy writing the check to the architect than the architect getting the check. All right. And so that's when I sort of switched gears and went more towards business and tried to figure out what what about business? Where could I find a niche for my skill sets, which I felt were somewhat creative, but you know, also with a business sense because I'd had that advertising interest. So how could I meld those two things together? Mm-hmm. And it ended up that uh, media, advertising media ended up the direction that I went. And what did you exactly after college? What did I do exactly after college? Well, so I started out in... Um, working for a company called Price Vister. I, mm-hmm. I graduated during a recession, moved from uh, the Southeast to Los Angeles, where my best friend from high school and the gal I was dating at the time lived. And I went to work for this company called Price Vister that made plumbing brass faucets. And I started out as a market analyst for them. Hmm. And through the course of my two and a half years there, ended up as a national accounts manager for their uh, private label brands for Ace Hardware and True Value Hardware. So it was sort of a sales job, but more of a marketing and account management job. Interesting. Um, And so basically that's how you got started on sales. Uh, What happened after that? Well, during that time at Price Fister, we had... We bought a lot of media in the building magazines because mm-hmm. we sold a tremendous amount of faucets and other plumbing-related gear to big builders. Mm-hmm. And we had a guy that always called on us. He was very polished all the time, wore a suit, always had a new Mercedes, which, you know, when you're 23, that's pretty cool. And he would go over to Germany to pick them up, and I thought that was pretty impressive. And I just it dawned on me one day that I would like to find out what this guy's deal is. And how he got where he got and how he likes his job. And so I called him and said, next time you swing through here, could I take you to lunch? Because I want to find out what you do. And he gave me the entire lowdown. Um, you know, how, what he liked about his career. And he was always, you know, had, always had good presentations. was always well-spoken. And I tried to figure out how can I end up being like that. And during the, this whole process, uh, my brother was in the process of going to Harvard Business School. And uh, before he got there, he was working for a publishing company in New York that needed a salesperson in Los Angeles. And he said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? Well, I knew nothing about that. I'd never really sold anything other than Mm -hmm. managing an account. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed, got the job, realized later that this particular, it was a newspaper, a weekly newspaper on technology, uh, typically was the number four buy in a market where the ad, ad agencies only bought three deep. So I was always fighting for to be the third guy on the list, but we were usually the fourth guy. So that was my first experience uh, in media. Learned a lot really quickly. Now, uh, in your in your book, First Job, First Paycheck, you said you had a lot of mentors. Yes. And that basically was one of the incentives that you have for writing the book. It's kind of like, I see it like as a pay it forward book. I give it back, yes. Who would you say was 
one of the most inspiring mentors you ever had? Well, that would have been my first boss, uh, mm -hmm. a guy named Jeff. And uh, he was the VP of marketing at mm -hmm. Price Fister. Uh, he always looked out for me. Uh, I was very loyal to him. Whatever he needed done, I would do. And, uh, you know, I had a good run with him for two and a half years. And to this day, we still keep up with each other. Wow. I want to talk about your books. You, you wrote three books. That's not an easy task. Two of them, uh, they're focused, uh, I would say, on money and finances. The other one is more on sales management. Correct. I know when we were in your, um, in your cell book, Christina, my wife, tells me that you told her that there's many books on money, but you only really need one and you just need to follow it. Correct. So since you brought two books on the topic, one is The Frugal Millionaires, the other one is First Job, First Paycheck, could you tell me a little bit about what's the difference between these two and which one would you say is your favorite? Sure. So it's hard. It's like picking your favorite child, I know. right? It's, yeah. it's, very, yeah. it's really difficult. You'll, you'll, if you have a second kid, you'll understand the yeah. theory. So, uh, but <laughs> so the frugal millionaires, that was the first one I wrote, uh, in that series of, mm -hmm. on the money stuff. And it was fascinating to me. I interviewed 70 millionaires, had to talk to 144, I think, to get the 70 that were kind of fit my model of being frugal wow. and not being well-known. How long did that, did that took you? Oh, probably um, yeah, a, a year, maybe. A year? Yeah, probably a little less than a year. And really what I was trying to do, I'd read this book called The Millionaire Next Door. It was, very, it was a great book, very academic though. He looked at things like, or the authors, they looked at statistics like, what was the cost per pound of a car that a millionaire drove? Now, I don't know when the last time you bought a car, but I don't go into a dealership and say, what do you got for $4 a pound? Mm -hmm. So I, I thought some of the ways they were analyzing things were just academic and not practical. Correct. And, uh, but I thought as a follow on to that, I'm going to talk to, I'm going to go outside of their model, which was kind of Midwest self-made millionaires. And I'm going to go all across the country and a little bit into Europe and find out people that were also self-made but did it a lot of different ways and try to find out what the common themes were among them so out of this i built a prototypical frugal millionaire and shared that and then also gave them 24 categories for them to give me their tips in each of these categories and the fascinating thing was uh, one of the reasons so many of them participated in the book was i said I'll share all this information back to you. You'll get first copies, you know, first transcripts of the book because they were all curious what the other guys were doing. Mm. They were wondering if they were missing anything. So this was a more practical guide. And I took a lot of the information from that book and then made it more appropriate to the millennial audience and put it in first job, first paycheck. So some of Frugal Millionaires ended up in first job, first paycheck. Interesting. From talking to all these millionaires, was there something that, really struck you as the most interesting insight something that perhaps you may have never even thought about at the time um there were a couple little things along the way but it was the real obvious stuff to me that was interesting and it's the things that they're able to do that the other 98 99 of the population just can't figure out mm -hmm. and that is just living within their means And so the response I get back when I say that from people is, well, of course they live within their means. They're millionaires. And they didn't start out as millionaires. None of them were handed 
a big chunk of money and you know and then you know their parents say, oh give it a go see what you can do mm-hmm. so they had to earn everything that they got so they when they didn't have any money they learned these principles about how to be smart with money and now that they have a bunch of it you know they live off a of very little of it uh, and they just use it for good pur- you know some people use it for very good purposes to help other people some just have it as a big cushion um, so that they can live the life that they want to live and do mm-hmm. the things that they want to do and help people when they can. And that's a very different approach than uh, I think a lot of the flashy millionaires might, might yeah. portray. And then you went on to writing uh, the first job, first paycheck. Correct. Yeah, that's the most recent one. What inspired you to write this book? Oh, so I would get a lot of questions from students. So I, I do a lot of mentoring college students mm-hmm. um, at University of Washington and the mm-hmm. University of Central Florida. Uh, those are my two sort of UCF's. I'm an alumni from there and UW's my adopted university because yeah. I live here in Seattle. But I would always get a lot of questions from them. And I just, I'm spread so thin that I, I can't talk to everybody all the time. I'd love to. And so I thought, well, if I could just get this down on paper and get these ideas to them, all these things that people wish they had been told about money when they were younger, then this would be really helpful. And actually the book's even been read at the high school level. And it's ideal for somebody who's probably in their sophomore, junior year in college. But even if you're just recently a graduate, there's a lot of, you know, gold in here to work with um, to just help you be a lot smarter with your money. Also something that I wanted to point out for the people who haven't read this book yet, which I really love is the writing style. It is very conversational. I mean, I don't. I don't think we met probably three times, four times since I met you. Right. However, I feel I know you way more because I felt like you truly mentored me through all these years through your book. And it wasn't like I was reading a textbook. It was like Jeff is just hooking me up with all this knowledge and he's just coaching me. And I felt you coached me through your book versus I consume this academic piece of content. Right. And that was the idea. Every, everything I write is designed to be conversational. It's just, that's what life is. Life is having conversations with people and learning from them. So I learn from you, you learn from me, Mm -hmm. and we can only do that with a conversation. If I come in with a big PowerPoint with all my bullet points on it and say, now you have to do this and I have to do that. And then you have to learn this. You're going to, eyes are going to glaze over in about 30 seconds and, and then nothing gets accomplished. And I want people to really be smart about their money in the future. You can either be smart about your money or not be smart. I'd and and I'd rather have you be smart about it. Mm-hmm. From the people uh, who haven't read the first job, first paycheck, uh, what why why would you say they need to read this book as recent grads? So there are so many things about money that we don't get taught. We don't have any real financial literacy at the high school level or the college level. There's a lot of things we just, it can't be part of the curriculum. There's so many other things that are crammed in, uh, class requirements, whatever your major is, all these things. They just don't have time. I will tell you at the University of Central Florida, one of the most popular classes is a personal finance class Hmm. in the College of Business. There is a waiting line of students to get in this class. Do you think this is now driven by these wave of millennials trying to be their own boss that could be part of it it could also be part of um a lot of the people that would be reading this book now went through the great recession in 2008 Mm. and they saw their parents get hammered and their friends around them get hammered and they saw people lose homes and and a lot of that was obviously very preventable 
and if you weren't living on the edge financially and over leveraged on car loans and mortgages and all that stuff, you probably had a much better time going through that recession. And I think a lot of people are fearful about money now, especially, you know, in your age group and younger. And uh, this is just trying to break down a bunch of that so that, that they understand that this isn't all that scary. And being smart about money is not complicated. The financial advisors and that whole industry would like to make it sound way more complicated than mm-hmm. it is. Um, because then they justify their fees and and their time that they spend with you and all that. But really, this is... This is, as they, the joke goes, it's not rocket surgery. Mm-hmm. What you wish you would have known about money in your 20s? So the one thing about money is um, you can either spend it or save it. Those are really your two choices. Mm-hmm. And when you save it and invest it smartly, it grows. And when you put it in appreciating assets, you don't really have to do anything, whether it's a retirement account or... Mm-hmm some sort of investment. It could be a real estate investment. It could be whatever it is. Most of the time it continues to grow. Historically, mm-hmm. if you look at the stock market, I mean, if you look at it on a day-to-day basis, it looks like somebody's having a heart attack. If you look at it over time, it's a very gentle curve up to the you know right-hand side. And so when you, when you look at um, money in your early years, you're like, well, what can I buy? I can buy my big screen TV and my big chair and, you know, all the stuff you think you need to buy, which when you look back at it 10 years later, it's like the TV's worthless, the chair's beat to heck. Um, but if you put that money, I'm not saying live in an apartment with no furniture, <laughs> but I'm saying is if you put your, put your money away, it'll start growing for you. And the sooner you start doing that, I mean, by the time people don't think out, you know, in 10 year increments, you know, 10, 20 X number of years out, that's a lot of money. That ends up being a huge amount of money, which you don't have if you're leasing a car when you're a kid or buying real estate before you should be buying real estate or, you know, those kinds of things. There's a certain time cycle to all of this. If you think about it, you think through it, it makes sense. You know, this really reminds me of, um, Two guys that I've been become a big fan of, they're called the minimalists. Mm. And they talk about a, making sure that whatever you have, whatever you acquire, you actually think through the fact that this actually brings happiness to my life. Yes. Because I feel a lot of people rely on buying things. Yes. On these flashy things to get that happiness. And that, in the financial part of this deal, takes away from being able to accomplish everything that you really preach in your in your book right as soon as you buy something you take that money out of your potential income stream and you i mean i I, trust me i bought enough cars in my years Mm -hmm. most of them have been used and (laughs) and uh you know lasted me for a long time and you know you get that buzz from that purchase and researching the purchase and all the fun that goes into that but you know six months to a year later it's the same car you've been driving yeah. And, uh, you know, that excitement's kind of worn off and you just can't make the mistake of saying, well, now I need to get a better, faster, bigger, whatever car and go through that sort of that buzz again. It does become a little addictive after a while. So you got to figure out a way to, and that's what, you know, I learned in the frugal millionaires, they were, they had the skill to put off that sort of feeling of immediate gratification and, uh, and just put their money away and let it work because there's, Nothing more satisfying than not having a mortgage and not having a car payment and having money in exactly. the bank so that you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. 
what what's your umbrella advice on how do you go about deciding when to buy or rent a house? So there's a couple things. Those are the um, after the fact choices you have to make after you've made other life choices. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> you decide what industry you're going to work in. You decide if you're going to have a family um, and how many might be in your family. Correct. And so there's all these different things. So if, if you... Um, are married, have a significant other, whatever, and you decide to have kids, whether you adopt them or have them on your own, and all of a sudden the space that you're living in. I mean, I've seen people live in very small spaces and raise two or three children in under a thousand square feet, and it's no big deal. But we're sort of programmed, or if I could say brainwashed, mm-hmm. into thinking that, well, we've always got to get a bigger house. We've always got to get a bigger something else. And, you know, Europe, you know, in Europe, they pass their houses down through generations. The same houses that are hundreds of years old. And uh, and they have multiple family members living in a lot of those houses. And they seem to have nailed that way of thinking uh, to their advantage. And we just are programmed differently. And, you know, we're incented to deduct mortgage interest, although it's not that great of a deal when you do the math on it. Like, I know you would do the math on it, but a lot of other people would not. They just hear somebody say, oh, well, I get the tax advantage of writing. You only get the tax advantage at whatever your tax rate is. So if you pay $10,000 a year, in mortgage interest, you're only deducting at what your tax rate is. So if your tax rate's 25%, you're only deducting $2,500. And you know, when you buy a house, um, everybody views it, or many people view it as an investment. I'm gonna put quotes around that. Mm-hmm. Well, what investment do you know of that when you go to sell it, you know, if I bought $200,000 worth of uh, index funds, mm-hmm. S&P 500 index funds, mm-hmm. And held on to it for a couple of years. Obviously, I can't live in an index fund. So, uh, and I tend to, the house you're living in is, I view it as a different kind of asset. It's not really an investment. A real estate investment is one that creates revenue for you, generates mm-hmm. revenue. So, if you're buy that month, you know, you invest in that index fund, that $200,000, and you go to sell it a couple of years later after it's, after it's appreciated, you know, five, 6% a year for a couple of years, you're only paying a small amount to liquidate that asset. If you're buying a house and you stay in it for a couple of years, uh, with the exception of probably the Seattle market, which is the houses are appreciating dramatically every Mm -hmm. year and they have been for a while now, um, you're going to pay about 10% to liquidate that asset. 6% in real estate commissions although there's a lot of disintermediation going on there. So you'll pay a lot less these days. Mm-hmm. It's more negotiable. But then there's other taxes and transfer fees and if you stage the house and all that. So 10% is the number of people generally work with. Well, if I was your stockbroker and I came to you and you wanted to liquidate that $200,000 of index funds and I told you it was going to be a 10% cost to do that, you'd look at me like I was crazy. And so I see people not thinking that model through um, you know, when they go to buy a house. And so to answer your question, you know, buy or rent, um, you have to figure out how mobile you want to be. And if, you're, um, if your company has put you in a certain town and you know you want to come back to another town that you know, maybe you went to college in or something like that later, if you're going to be gone for two years, I would rent. Uh, I would seriously rent and then be saving money along the way if you can. I mean, obviously, rent is very expensive here in the Seattle area and a lot of major markets like San Francisco. But um, it gives you the flexibility and the mobility. And that's really what you're buying. As soon as you buy a house and you're sort of anchored to that house, unless you're in a super hot real estate market, it's going to be hard to sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and you don't want to be stuck somewhere if you get this great job opportunity 400 miles away uh you can't move because of your house and then some people would say well i can rent it sure that you know i wish i had had enough money and resources that when uh the two previous houses that i've owned before i moved up here uh I wish that I could still be renting them out because they're both worth over a million dollars right now. But I didn't have the, I needed money for a down payment for my next house. Mm. So I had to sell the house. Um, so, so you don't always have, I mean, so you have to figure out what your math is at the time you're making the decision. Mm-hmm. And if you need that appreciation from your house, the equity to, to as a down payment for your next house to make your next house affordable, you may not be able to keep it and rent it. So, and that's why, you know, it's, it's really very situational depending on what somebody's circumstances are. So the life choice will drive the rent or buy decision ultimately. Down payment. The rule of thumb is 20% to have a 20% for a down payment. And you seem to mention it like it's something that you have to have before you buy a house. Is, is there any uh, case where it would be okay not to? Have a 20%. Sure. There's always exceptions to everything. I mean, the 20%, I think the reason I said that is that it eliminates the mortgage insurance that you need to have, mm-hmm. which is to me kind of like a wasted um, amount of money. But uh, but they figure, I guess, if you put 20% in, you're not going to walk from it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some, I mean, we're back to the days of where you can get into a place for as little as 5%. And the really the question is whether you're over leveraging yourself. You know, there's metrics now when I was buying my first home, they said, you know, don't take any more than 25% of your take home or whatever, or maybe it was your gross, uh, towards your housing. Well, yeah. now I think that number is up in the 30% range. Or 35, or, I see. Okay, yeah. Sense. So it keeps creeping up. By the way, I think it's the same marketing people that tell you that you of need course. two months of salary <laughs> for when you buy an engagement ring, right? Yeah. So, so obviously, there's some <laughs> self-serving stuff going on there. But, uh, you know, sometimes it takes that to get into a housing market. So 20% is just a, I mean, it took me... When I first decided to buy a house, it was a townhouse actually mm-hmm. in in um, the Bay Area. Uh, I I think I was aiming for ten percent, mm-hmm. and the house prices were going up so dramatically that every time I had the ten percent, I didn't have the ten percent because the house prices had gone up again. So I had I had to like keep keep saving, keep saving more and more and more, and then you get this big chunk of money, and you're like, wow, I don't really know if I want to hand over this. You know, at the time, I think the first place I bought was a $150,000 townhouse. Mm-hmm. And so $15,000, that was a lot of money to put in, you know, to it. It would have zeroed out my savings account. And so, but you know, if you want to get into it and you want a place and you want to start growing your equity and those kinds of things, then that's the decision you have to make. Mm-hmm. But 20 is an average and it bounces around from that. But 20 is a trigger point for not having to pay PMI. So I guess, the only way you would consider not, correct me if I'm wrong, doing a 20% is is if in the deal that you're getting into, they will be okay not charging you for PMI. Without. But, generally, but generally, they have their rules and the rules so are it's has 20%. To... <clears throat> yes. That makes sense. So it would be a big waste of money <laughs> too. What would you say to somebody that says, yeah, but we can refinance later and we can make up for the... Yeah, so that whole refinance That's thing. That's an option. So, so my only rule on refinancing is that whatever you have left to pay off, if you refinance, don't restart the 20 or 30, 15, 20 or 30 year clock. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, oh, my payment's less and all. Yeah, but you're paying for another 10 years. 
you know, if you've paid off for 10 years already, have the shortest mortgage period that you can possibly afford. And on top of that, if you can make a half payment every two weeks, you will have made an extra payment every year because you've made 26 half payments or 13 full payments. And you've got that extra money that's going against your principal. And on an average 30 year mortgage, if you do that half payment every other week, every two weeks, you can knock six or seven years off a 30 year mortgage just by doing that. So I would do whatever you can, uh, you know, within your financial, um, you know, needs, because some people are, you know, paying off college loans. Some people are setting up college fund for their kids. Some Mm -hmm. people are trying to save money for investments. So, but um, the sooner you can become debt free, uh, Mm -hmm. the better off you are. Now, but the incentive for, Uh, banks to refinance your Mm -hmm. home is to extend that period because they make more interest over time, right? So it would be very unlikely that they will refinance with the same period of time? Oh, no. No, no. Um, I mean, you can call that. You can can say, you know, if you were in a 30-year mortgage and you'd pay 10 of it off and you got 20 left, you might want to see if you refinance because what you're really trying to do when you refinance is you're trying to lower your interest Mm -hmm. and people are trying to lower their payment. Mm -hmm. Usually... If they're trying to lower their payment, you got to wonder what's going on there. Are they have they overspent on other stuff and they're trying to save money now? Because whether or not you're saving money is a, is a big debate point. Because if you are now extending your mortgage or you're just resetting the clock back to thirty years, so if I could do, if I was going to refinance, I'd go for a shorter period of time, mm-hmm. and and try to get that. I mean, but now mortgage rates are so ridiculously low. Um, it sort of raises the question, well, shouldn't I just, um, you know, buy the, buy this place at really low interest, um, and then take, you know, all my other money and earn more, you know, on financial investments and all, it doesn't always work out that way. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this whole robo advising thing? Because it really matches. I mean, I don't know if you have taken the time to look at Betterman or Wealthfront, which are the top two, um. How do you feel about what they're doing? So I'm familiar with them, and and I think they're a great concept. Anytime you can disintermediate an expense in your life, then uh, that's a good thing, right? And uh, you know their focus is on fiduciary responsibility, which just until recently, a lot of the advisors really they could act in the best interests of themselves and their company, not your best interests. So so there's that whole change of foot on that, but. I will say, you got to a point where you did a bunch of the research on your own, so you understood the concepts, and then you went with the sort of the robo model because you already understood what was going on, and you realized that that was a more efficient way to manage your financial future. Automation, right? Exactly. So I hearken this back to, well, that's a good word, hearken, um, back to when the TI calculator came out and I was probably in sixth grade. And I remember a kid brought a calculator to sixth grade and it was great that the calculator was there and you could punch all this stuff in, but I wanted to learn the math. I wanted to understand the math part before I started punching numbers into the calculator because then the calculator took that away from me, my understanding of how numbers work. Uh, It just, it automated it. So the same thing is true now, you know, with the robo advisors you really have to understand kind of what your goals are, what you want your money to do for you, where you want it to be, and then by all means, use an automated process to get you there. 
um, because it's way more efficient. But you have to understand the basics and how money works before. I wouldn't just do that cold because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people do the um, the aged, ba- you know, retirement based uh, funds and they tell you kind of what the mix should be and all that. Oh, my gosh. If I listen to that, uh, I mean, I'm pushing 60 years old and I'm 90 percent into equities right now. And if I use the model that's been the traditional model, I'd have 60 percent in bonds right now. And and when the Great Recession hit, well, that was eight years ago, so I would have been 52% into bonds. And I would have not benefited from the huge growth in the market since 2008. So sometimes you have, I mean, it's great that you can automate it, but you have, still have to oversee it. And you still have to look at what the trends are and what's going on around you and make the adjustments because it's your money after mm-hmm. all. Savings. If you're saving for retirement, buying a house, a college fund, which comes first when it comes to savings? Okay, so you've already said earlier that you set up your emergency fund Correct. and your savings account. So let's assume that's already done, right? So that would be the first. The right, that's a big fund. thing that people miss. You know, it's like, it's really important to have a cushion. I, I can't tell you the amount of stress people feel when they don't have a cushion. What's your minimum that you re- personally recommend? For oh, I would fund? say six months. Six months. You know, but it, uh, it depends on what kind of expense structure you have. You know, if you're living with your parents... And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you have a, you have a different set of expenses. Of um, but if you have an apartment and a roommate and a car payment and a you know uh, uh, college loan repayment, all that, I mean, you're gonna have a bigger nut that you got to save. All right? So pay so, your debts, then the emergency fund, or do those at the same time? Uh, well, I would have a savings account. I mean, it's, to me, a savings account. Look, savings accounts are. They pay almost no interest. Correct. It's just a holding pen for your money right now. Correct. That's all it is. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying any, nobody's going to ever get rich by putting money in a savings account. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you need to have some allocated there for when you need it. And mm-hmm. it if you put it in a stock fund, it's going to be a little harder to get it out. And that's going to fluctuate. And you're mm-hmm. going to feel bad liquidating it if the market's down. Correct. You're going to feel like, oh, my God, the market's down 10%. I'm going to lose 10% of this money. Uh, if it's just been sitting in the savings account earning 1% or whatever the number is right now, or one-tenth of 1%, then uh, it's okay. I mean, just realize a part of your money is going to sit there. But in terms of, you know, it, again, it's that life choice question. You know, it's like, well, I want to get my, uh, let's say I want to get my college loans paid off. Most people have a 10-year model on that. Mm-hmm. So would you be surprised to know that uh, if you graduate when you're 22 and you pay 10 years of college loans while you're renting or whatever. And would you be surprised to know that most people buy their first home in their early 30s? And do you think there's any correlation between that and having paid off their college loans? Because now they've freed up some money so that they can actually um, buy real estate, you know, buy a house or buy a condo or whatever. There, I mean, there is a sort of life path that most people don't observe. And I've been, I saw it. I've been able to see it. So... Uh, I can share it with people and say, that's kind of the way I've seen this work out. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's going to become, you don't need a college fund if you're not going to have kids. Co- correct. Right? So, uh, I mean, I think the fair way to say it is to try and disperse it all equally, a third, a third, a third of whatever's left. And, you know, between your house fund and whatever, you know, whatever else, your investments and all those things. But it's going to be, you know, if you're going to have four kids, it's a different business. It's a different <laughs> model than if you're just going to have one kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also you know, when it comes to college funds, you, mean, you want to look at what the state provides and what kind of 
fund you can invest right. in with the state that will make that more affordable when it comes time for your kids to go to college. So you just got to see what all your options are. And then it's really based on what your value set is mm. as to how you want to play it out. Interesting. Now I wanted to talk about, to learn more about Jeff, just a couple of fun questions. If you could invite three people to have dinner with you, uh, dead or alive, not in the dinner, but right, you get right. the point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Who would you invite and what's one attribute or quality that you admire about each of them? Okay, so I looked at this a little bit differently uh, because I, I love questions. Well, I mean, I have this motto, your success in life is directly related to the quality of the questions you ask and what you do with the answers. Hmm. But even though somebody asks me a question doesn't mean I can modify, I don't have to, I, I, it means I can modify my answer if I want to. Sure. So I've got a couple modifications to that. Okay. So, so I looked at one, two, three, and the first person I picked uh, was Elizabeth Warren. And, mm -hmm. and the reason I picked her regardless of what her party is uh -huh. uh, or her political inclinations is she does not suffer fools and she will call out stuff that is BS and she will always, you know, call out the bad guy and make their life miserable. And that's probably goes back to my bullying experience when I was a young kid. Nobody likes to get bullied. And I think she sort of stands up for the people that, um, don't work the system like the bullies do. And, and she acts as a protector. So she, she will really tell it like it is and she will not hold back on anything. And, and, but she's very articulate about it and everything that, you know, when you hear her speak, it makes sense to you. It's not a bunch of political double speak. It is very direct and it's kind of the way we would want to be spoken to. Unless, unless we're getting, you know, an earful from her, <laughs> but even then. So that's my first person. My second person is actually two. It's actually three, but two different kinds of people. It's Frank Lloyd Wright and Charles and Ray Ames. And uh, one obviously clearly is an architect. The other ones are furniture designers. And they're just ability to c communicate clearly what their intentions are and their design elements and their ability to communicate with their clients and end up with some amazingly um, well thought out conclusions or, or designs or buildings or whatever um, that you will never forget once you've sat in one of their chairs or walked through one of their buildings. So I think it would be fascinating. The third is actually three people, Ellen DeGeneres, Craig Ferguson, and Christiane Amanpour. Because they Who's are the last one, Christiane Amanpour. She is a um, international correspondent for CNN and also I think ABC News. Mm. And all of them have this skill set of being able to ask amazing questions. They are they drill right down to the point, and they, in most cases, unless they're getting politically BSed by somebody, they will not let go until they get the question answered that they're looking to be answered. Mm. So. Those are the people that I came up with. But what to me would be really interesting people to have around the dinner table would be the assistants for each of those people because the assistants will tell you who they really are and what they're really like and what really motivates them rather than the chamber of commerce version that you would get by talking to those people individually because they're guarded. They have a reputation to protect all those things. Although I think some of these, I think you know Ellen DeGeneres is very genuine. I don't think, I mean, she's become who she is because she's very genuine about who she is. Um, 
and Craig Ferguson to a degree too, probably all of them. But um, but when you get into politicians and famous architects, you know they have sort of this mythology they have to uphold. Mm-hmm. And I'd rather find out from the people that were working with them every day what they were really like. That would mm. be most interesting to me. This is a fun question. What is something that most people don't know about you? Well, I think you might know it, but obviously not a lot of okay. people know it. Uh, so years ago, I competed in a transatlantic yacht race from Southampton, England to Boston. Uh, it was an 18-day race through um, from anywhere from having no wind and being pushed backwards to sailing through a hurricane. Wow. And uh, they say that when you do a race like this, when you get off the boat at the other end, you are a changed person. And I have to agree that is very true. So it was one of those things that I did. Uh, that was in 2002 that I did that. And uh, it was an amazing experience. It was 18 days, three hours and 56 minutes. And if I ever get a tattoo, that's what it's going to say. Uh, and I, I really feel like it gave me a level of confidence to do things that I have, you know, never done before or had never done before at the time. Hmm. And then the other thing is, uh, what would you say are three words that best describe you? So I'm not going to use adjectives. Okay. Uh, the three words that best describe me is that it's not about me. Mm-hmm. Or if you want the three words, put others first. And I have found, I mean, all these books are givebacks. So the publishing company I have, any of the profits that we have from the publishing company after our expenses, we donate to charities. It's a mm-hmm. give back. And so I learned a long time ago that if you put other people first, you have a much better quality of life than if it's always about you all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather give than take. And uh, it's it's an important concept. It took me years to figure it out. Um And, and once I did figure it out, a whole different set of dimensions and things change in your life. It just realized that helping other people, and this is something my dad does. You know, I ask him every Father's Day and I ask him on his birthday, Dad, what's your life advice? And he says, uh, I love helping other people as long as you can help other people. You know, if you're still, still living and breathing, if you can help other people, then you're going to have a great life. Hmm. And that's, that's, that's the way I, I, I agree with him completely on that. Mm Mm-hmm. Then finally, what's uh, just to give the listeners a way to contribute back um, to all these advice that you're sharing? What would you say is like the latest thing that you're working on, a project or something well, so on how there, can those listening to this podcast do to support you? I, I would encourage them to do something every day or at most every week that gets them out of their comfort zone, that challenges themselves. You know, I've tried to challenge a lot of the conventions and things that I've written and my conversations with people. Just challenge the status quo, challenge the way things are always done. And, you know, what drives markets forward, what changes the world is people that think differently and and try to disintermediate things that uh, uh, bother them, that are too expensive for them, whatever it is. So just go out and see what difference you can make. Talk to people that you would normally not talk to. Um, engage in a concept that you wouldn't normally engage in. Just see if you can push yourself out of your comfort zone and see how much that'll make you grow as a person. I've spent a lot of my life doing that. Um, and you know, I've had a great life, been successful, I think, in a lot of respects. And I'd like to see other people maybe think about that too and just not fall into kind of this is the way it's always been done. And so on that note, I think that's, that's what I would offer. What's the best place to follow you on your work? Uh, just follow the books. books. And uh, yeah, um, 
I uh, I don't keep an active blog uh, mm-hmm. because I would probably always be writing in it, <laughs> and uh, and I'm not sure everybody's up for that. Uh, but just you know, follow the books and you know, learn something from those. Okay, and I will put a link in the show notes, linking to to the book, so people can. Oh, great! Thank you. Uh, can get access to that. Well. That's it, Jeff. Thank you so much. This I've loved. I really enjoyed talking to you today. My pleasure. All right. And that was my interview with Jeff Lehman. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access these episodes notes alongside other resources at the btspodcast.com. Again, that's the btspodcast.com. Com. Finally, if you enjoyed listening to this interview, the best way to support me and this podcast is by leaving a positive review on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in and remember to live a life that moves you. <laughs>